We'll turn to Matthew chapter 1. In a few moments, we'll start reading in verse 18, but you can turn there now, Matthew chapter 1. Um, our house, probably like many of yours, has some nativity sets. We have, I think, two different nativity sets we usually set up. Uh, one is one that you might have seen at the store. I've seen them in different places. All the figures are kind of white and neutral tones, and none of them have faces, which kind of honestly creeped me out when we first got them. But I kind of have grown to appreciate it because it sort of keeps some of them the mystery while still highlighting the nativity. Another set we have, we bought when our kids were little, and it's made by little tykes, and they are molded in plastic and made so that we can put them down low. And when we had toddler after toddler for, for years, somebody was always grabbing the nativity set, right, and banging it and tossing it. It was made to handle that kind of thing. Well, these characters in the nativity set, we, we feel like we kind of know them. We look back on them with... 2,000 years of reflection. We look at them in the context of what came before and what came after. But of course, they didn't have that luxury, except through the eyes of faith. They, they didn't know that 2,000 years later they'd be cast in plastic and a toddler would be sucking on them, right? They, they were just going through these experiences that the Lord had placed them in, seeking to be faithful to him in the midst of it. The main character, of course, in the Christmas narrative is Christ himself. It's his coming, his incarnation, his uh, self-humbling that Tom taught about so well last week out of Philippians 2. His birth, his perfect life of active obedience, his substitutionary death, his resurrection, his ascension. I mean, he is the, the main character of all of Scripture, not just the Christmas narrative. But around him... In the gospel narratives, we see several what we might call supporting characters that God has seen fit to tell us about. He, he didn't have to. He could have left those details kind of fuzzy, and yet they're intentionally not fuzzy. In Matthew and Luke, we have several chapters that describe often in great detail what these different characters were thinking and struggling with and doing. They're the supporting cast. We never want to take away from the, the main character. Their job is not to steal the spotlight from Christ. But they were human instruments that God used to kind of move this narrative forward to the birth of his son. And even in the fulfillment of prophecy, they were real people walking in faithful obedience, often in unusual and trying circumstances. So in the next few weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to look at some of these side characters, some supporting characters of Christmas, not to distract from Christ, but hopefully by looking at some of these details to enhance even more our understanding of Jesus' birth and all that took place. First character we're going to look at with this is Joseph. Um, Joseph is, is quiet in Scripture. In fact, if you were cast as Joseph in a Christmas play and you could only use the words of Scripture, you would have no lines. Joseph doesn't say anything. We're actually, we actually know quite a bit about him, as we'll see here in a moment, but he doesn't say anything. He has no dialogue. Uh, in fact, one, one pastor told a story about a, a Christmas play that their church was doing uh, about the nativity and different kids cast in different roles. And the, the young boy who was supposed to play Joseph uh, came up sick the very afternoon um, of the play. 
And so they were scrambling, trying to find somebody to replace him. And by the time the play came, they, they could not find somebody to take his spot. And so they just, they just deleted Joseph from the narrative. And nobody noticed. <laughs> nobody noticed. And we focus so much more on, on these others. And yet, as God has revealed scripture to us, we actually see quite a bit of detail about him. And as we look at this, yeah, we learn more about him, but, but we learn what it means to follow Christ, to follow the Lord in obedience, a trying situation. We see his thoughts, his fears, his actions, his faithful obedience as he comes to terms with, with who Jesus is. Let's read this now in Matthew 1. We'll start in verse 18. Chapter, or verses 1 to 17 has the genealogy account, but then picking up in chapter 18 is where we'll be today. Or chapter 1, verse 18, sorry. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And he shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Make some observations out of these first few verses and what we'll see is that Joseph was a righteous and compassionate man. Righteous and compassionate is how he's described here. Uh, a little bit about their arrangement here because it can be a little bit confusing, I think, they're described as being betrothed, as not yet married, uh, but then he's called her husband, and as he thinks about ending this, he talks about him needing to divorce her. And, and so what is their status? Well, it's different than an arrangement today, right? Today, somebody might date for a while, get engaged. If they decide to break it off, the worst that happens is they have to you know, give the ring back and cancel a ceremony, something like that. Um, but it was much more formal at this time. A couple might have been prearranged for their marriage by their parents, perhaps when they were very young. Uh, and up until about a year before the actual wedding, they could, either one of them or their parents presumably, could, could call it off with no big consequences. But about a year before the actual wedding, they entered a formal betrothal. And that's not something that they could just casually end. If they wanted to end it, it required essentially a divorce, and it couldn't be done for just any reason that they wanted to. They were in some ways viewed already as husband and wife, although not having yet come together, not living together as husband and wife. And so that's the status for their relationship. They're betrothed, this formal engagement, but they're not yet fully married. And it's when they're in this status that he learns that she is pregnant. He doesn't know, doesn't know that this is by the Holy Spirit. 
He hasn't been told that yet. It's interesting. For Mary, she is told that this child to come is going to be, that's going to be conceived as from the Holy Spirit, and, and then she conceives. For Joseph, he learns about the conception first, and it's not till later, and we don't know how much later, that he's actually told by the angel that it's from the Holy Spirit. And so there's a period of time here where he doesn't know that. At least he's not convinced of that. So think about what that would have been like for him. They would have had plans and dreams and hopes for their future. Think about a wedding vow that somebody makes today. It's going to be different then, but similar. Bride and groom, they, they stand together, they hold hands, and they repeat their vows for better, for worse, in sickness and health, as long as we both shall live. And, and you know, especially those of you that have been married for 20 years, you know that they're thinking about the, the better, the health, <laughs> the they're not thinking about the worse, the sickness, the hardship. They're, they're looking with optimism at the future and all their plans. And they're not thinking about the hospital visits, right? times of infertility, job loss. They're thinking with optimism at their future. I'm sure that's how Joseph and Mary would have been. Looking with optimism and hope. And now all that seems to be dashed for Joseph. Look at the end of verse 18. If you remove the phrase, by the Holy Spirit, you get a sense of what he would have been thinking. Before they came together, she was found to be with child. He wasn't a fool. People at that time, they, they knew where babies came from. He knew he isn't the father. She likely was trying to explain what she'd been told, but apparently he's not believing that, or she didn't mention it, because he's considering what to do. I'll, I'll tell you what he was not thinking, just from what we've seen here. He didn't start humming, you know, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. You know, he's excited that, hey, the Messiah's coming. He's not thinking that. It says he is considering what to do, and he's making plans to send her away quietly. And this is where we see his righteousness and his compassion. Look at verse, verse 19. It says, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. He wanted to do the righteous thing. And it was like to move forward with this, knowing that she's been unfaithful, would not be righteous, he thinks. And so he thinks, I need to, I need to end this. And he could have done it in a very public way. He could have brought her before the religious leaders, declared, you know, what's happened. And they could have even stoned her if they wanted to, or at least exiled her. He could have been very public about it. But even before he knows that this baby is from the Holy Spirit, he plans to do this quietly and to not disgrace her. We don't know how long this period of waiting lasted. Verse 20 says, when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. But there's no time markers there. It could have been the very night. So it could have been she told him during the day that very night. It could have been days. It could have been weeks but just imagine that in-between time, what that would have been like for him. But it doesn't end there. Of course, the angel appears to him and describes him as a son of David. And that's our next point here as we see about him. He's, he's a devout son of David, as the angel initially tells him. So verse 20, this angel appears to him and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. 
Angels played a major role in this early period. Um, we, we see them warning different people, uh, appearing to different people. And, and it's because of this unique time, this unique time in redemption history as the Lord is, is orchestrating the fulfillment of this. He's called the son of David. Besides Jesus in the New Testament, he's the only other one that's referred to this way. We know from the genealogy, verses 1 to 17, that Joseph is in this family line of David. And we're told that in the genealogy because it, it cements who Jesus is in this line of the Messiah. Like it was this, as a Messiah, he needed to be in this family line. So we're told that through the genealogy. Joseph is told it here. He's reminded that he's a son of David. Perhaps as a reminder that, that yes, this is the family line that the Messiah would come. But even more significantly is not the way he's named, but the way the child is named here. Verse 21, he says, She will bear a son, the angel tells him, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's this identity of this child she's carrying that is transformative for Joseph. He's Jesus one who will take away the sins of his people. He's Emmanuel, as it goes on to say, is God with us. Can't help but think of Psalm 130 when we read that name. Psalm 130 is what they call a psalm of ascent, meaning it was a song that the Jewish people would sing as they ascended up to Jerusalem for a feast. And there were often ones of anticipation, psalms of anticipation, kind of like Advent uh, is meant to be kind of a period of anticipation leading up to Christmas. So were these psalms of ascent were meant to be a, a time of anticipation. And some of the language here parallels so well this, with this name of Jesus. It, it, and that'll be in verse 8 is where we're going to get to. But starting in verse 3 of Psalm 130, it's this declaration. It says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? That is our great problem, isn't it, for all of us? If the Lord should mark, meaning hold against us, hold us accountable to our iniquities, our, our sin, no one could stand. No, no, nobody. Not me, not, not Joseph, actually not, not you, because there's guilt for all of us. That's the implied answer of this. Who, who could stand? No one. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. In his word do I hope. This Old Testament period of, of waiting for the Messiah it was a time of anticipation. It was a time of waiting. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness and with him is abundant redemption. And then notice this last line. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. It's right here. They're to name him Jesus, for he will save, that is, he will redeem, his people, here in the Old Testament, it's Israel, beyond that, after that it's expanded, from all his iniquities, all his sins. This baby that Mary is carrying, Joseph is told, is the one they've been waiting for, the one who will save his people from their sins. He is Emmanuel, he is God with us, Learning this changed the course of Joseph's life. As far as we can tell, his plan was to be a carpenter and to marry Mary and to live a quiet, faithful life. But all of that was upended. And that's what we see next. We see him obeying. Obeying over and over again at great personal cost to himself. 
we see this, that he's told who this little one would be. And look at verse 24 of chapter 1. Joseph awoke from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took Mary as his wife. Simple. When he awoke, he did what he was told. He obeyed. He, he took Mary as his wife. He kept her a virgin until Jesus was born, something that wasn't commanded, but he did to make extra clear that this was a virgin birth, and he named the boy Jesus, it tells us, just as he was told here. Um, again, what would he have felt? Well, we're not told there, but anybody who's a, a dad knows that experience of being there when a, a baby is born and feeling like there's absolutely nothing you could do but excited about it. I remember when our firstborn was born and being in the hospital and one of our close friends was there and he, he asked me, what are, you, what are you feeling right now? It's a typically articulate guy. I said, I have no idea what I'm feeling right now. No idea, right? But you just know it's like, it's intense and it's exciting and Joseph would have likely been there. But he obeyed. He obeyed the Lord. And then he obeyed again and again and again. He called him Jesus, just as he was told to do. He willingly took Mary and the child, knowing that people would not believe this account of the virgin birth. He was willing to be misunderstood. He was willing to have his reputation tarnished. He cared more about what God thought than what other people would think. Can you imagine trying to explain, oh, this child's from the Holy Spirit, right? Like, like they had angels revealing this to them, but surely others would have been skeptical. And yet he was willing to live with that. Luke describes the journey to Bethlehem that Matthew does not. Um, Matthew just describes the baby being born. We know from Luke that they had to travel to Bethlehem because of a census. There was a direction from one government official, uh, Caesar Augustus, to take a census. And so before this baby was born, while Mary was pregnant, they had to travel all the way to Bethlehem, probably about 100 miles, uh, perhaps on foot, perhaps on an animal. Um, and yet Augustus was merely God's tool to bring them to that point so that the baby would be born just where prophecy said they were going to be born. I hadn't really thought about this until last night, but um, if you're ever frustrated by government overreach, like... Right? You feel like something is like unreasonable that the government is asking you to do. Well, this was government overreach, probably. They, they had to travel while she was pregnant far away. And yet, God, in his sovereign will, wove even that into the tapestry of how he was fulfilling prophecy to get them here at just the right time so the baby would be born in Bethlehem. But the road trip doesn't end there. After a period of time, perhaps two years, they have to travel again. And we read about that in Matthew. So in verses 1 to 12 of Matthew chapter 2, we learn about the wise men. We skip over that, though. We pick up in verse 13, and we come back to Joseph and Mary. And after being in Bethlehem for a period of time, perhaps as long as two years, they were warned again. So picking up in chapter 2, verse 13. Now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. 
Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because there were none, or because there were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared, to, appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called the Nazarene. Journey after journey after journey. Each time in obedience to what the angel had told him. Three times here. All right, we see they're warned. And he, just, he wakes up and he does just exactly what he's told to do. He gets up and he takes the wife and his child and they, and they go. First, they'd have to travel to Bethlehem um, uh, for the census. And then from there down to Egypt, probably about another 100 miles. After there for a while, we don't know exactly how long, they go back into Judea. Uh, but then they're warned again and they go up to Nazareth. Uh, each time in obedience to the Lord, each time um, would have been difficult. Those of you with kids now, you know, road trips are hard, aren't they? <laughs> Even now. Like, it's fun, it's great, but there's often challenges. And that's in the comfort of a minivan, right? Remember, well, when, our, when our kids were little, we still tried to just keep going and keep doing things. I remember one trip, it's an eight-hour drive, and the baby that we had at the time did great for seven hours. And then the last hour, it was just screaming and I just remember just gripping the steering wheel and just trying just kind of get home that's now imagine back then when this would have been a journey on foot or perhaps on an animal it would have been weeks and weeks and yet over and over again to preserve the life of this child that had been entrusted to them they obeyed and they obeyed and they obeyed at great personal cost what do we learn what do we learn from Joseph here Again, the main point of these passages is Jesus. Preparing the way for Jesus. Prophecy about Jesus, his name, his identity. And yet the Lord has sawn fit to, to give us some details about Joseph. And we can learn some things from him. And the first is by his example to just obey the Lord and not your feelings. Obey the Lord. Joseph was unique in one sense. None of us are being called to carry a child from the Holy Spirit or marry somebody who had and adopt that child on her own. That's unique to this situation. And yet, believers in every time period have opportunities to obey and obey when it's hard and obey when their feelings might tell them otherwise and obey at personal cost, obeying not the word of an angel in a dream, but God's word that's revealed to us that we can look at over and over again. Maybe it's hardship of forgiving somebody that we don't want to, letting go of bitterness, maintaining sexual purity in a relationship that you're tempted. Whatever it might be, there's opportunities to obey when it would be easier not to. And we see example here with Joseph of somebody who did that. These examples can be encouragements for us, even in the midst of suffering. Uh, John Bloom, he, he talks about this. 
And I think does it well. I'm going to read a quote. It says, The Holy Family's first few years were not tranquil. They were filled with grueling travel during the hardest part of pregnancy, a birth and worse than a barn, no steady income, an assassination attempt, two desert crossings on foot with an infant, living in a foreign country, waiting on God for guidance and provisions just in the nick of time. It was difficult, expensive, time-consuming, career-delaying, and full of uncertainty, and it was God's will. If we ever think that God's will is always going to be easy, just look at examples like this of Joseph when we see otherwise. And yet there was faithful obedience. But we don't just stop there. Anything we see with Joseph is that everything changed when he realized who this baby was. This baby is Jesus. This baby is Emmanuel. This baby is the one that would save his people from their sins. It was the identity of Jesus that transformed him. And that's where there's a word for us as well. That, that if all we do is look at Joseph's example and say, okay, all right, I need to obey, I need to obey, I need to obey. It's an example that we can follow, and I think we're meant to, but it can just be kind of just moral imperatives and commands without the heart behind it. But really the reason that Joseph obeyed is he trusted God. He saw through the eyes of faith who this baby would be as the Holy Spirit or the word from the angel told him this. Likewise, our life changes when we realize who Jesus is, when we really see who he is. Our life may still be one of quiet, faithful plotting, but our, our perspective changes. Our goals change. The trajectory of our life changes. For some, it might be much more dramatic. It might be turning from drugs and violence to, to peace. It might be from self-centered pursuit of fame to a simple life of faithful obedience. It might be turning from fear to, to rest or from a, a quiet rebellion that you're keeping hidden from others to a heart to follow the Lord. And it's, it's Jesus that transforms that. It's Jesus that transforms. Our greatest problem, as we read in Psalm 130, is if the Lord would count iniquities, who would stand? None of us. None of us. And Jesus is the great solution to that problem. Joseph still had to look ahead to the eyes of faith. He was told this child would save his people from their sins. And he's saying, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust that you'll do that. We look back and we see what's revealed and we see exactly how he did that. And when we see that it's my sin, your sin that's died for, that's paid for, and we turn from that and trust in Christ, he transforms our very lives. I want to end with this quick story of a man whose life was transformed. Many of you might have heard this story of William Borden. Uh, William Borden was born in the late 19th century in Chicago to a wealthy family. In fact, if you've been at the grocery store and you've seen Borden dairy products, um, that's it's this family line. They they had a uh, they made their wealth through through a dairy industry. So he was born into wealth and privilege, and when he was a teenager, perhaps 13 years old. Um, Mom took him to church at what is now uh, Moody Bible Church in Chicago. And while he was there, he, he heard the gospel with crystal clarity. And he, and he trusted in Christ himself. And so even as a teenager, his perspective began to change. And he wanted to follow Christ. And he graduated high school. And as a graduation gift, and feel free, kids, to mention this to your parents if you're approaching graduation. They sent him on a, an around-the-world vacation. That sounds like a great way to wrap up high school. So he travels around the world. This is in about the year 
just after 1900. And while on this journey, he developed a heart for missions. And as he saw the need for Christ globally. And so he came back. He went to Yale. While at Yale, he rallied other students to, to pray. And to pray specifically for missions, but to pray. And at one point, out of 1,300 students at Yale, 1,000 were gathering in small groups to pray. And to pray specifically for missions. After graduating Yale, he went to seminary. And then to prepare... Because uh, he, he wanted to reach Muslims in northern China. So to prepare for that, he went to Egypt to learn Arabic. Learn Arabic for a few years and then travel to northern China to reach, to reach Muslims in northern China. While in Egypt, learning Arabic, he got spinal meningitis and he died at 25 years old. Before he ever reached the mission field he wanted to get to. He'd already given away more than a million dollars. Um, even as a young man, even... A hundred years ago, a million dollars is a lot of money. He'd already given away most of his wealth and then was preparing to, to go serve in a difficult place when he died. His tombstone is just a simple cement slab in Cairo, and these words are printed on the bottom of it. Apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Could that be said of, of our lives? Apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. It might not be like William Borden. It might not be a life of kind of leaving what you have here to go overseas. Some are called to that. Many are not. Many are called to be faithful here. And yet, is your life transformed in some way that apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life? There's no explanation for such hope and suffering for such generosity, for such kindness, for such quickness to forgive. When we really learn who Jesus is, our life is transformed. Let's pray.